0: The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. It's wonderful to be with you this morning and worship our God together. Um, Russ was telling me he was so excited he came here yesterday morning. he didn't realize it was Saturday he came here to turn the heat on, and so he's definitely excited to be here and ready to be here. I think we all are, of course. All kidding aside, it's always a privilege and a joy to gather on the Lord's Day and study His Word together and worship Him. I've been so encouraged by your participation in worship. hope you have as well, and I hope this lesson is um, advantageous to you as well. Uh, You might notice a slight change in my voice. About once a year, I have allergy problems, which cause me to lose my voice overnight. That's what I'm dealing with. It's been worse than this before, so hopefully it won't be too bad i got some water up here just in case, but you'll just have to bear with me. I, I usually, I think, project a little more than what I'll be able to do this morning. If you would turn with me in your New Testaments to John chapter 12, we'll look at a section of John 12 in a moment. While you're turning there, uh, there is a, a saying, a phrase that I've seen posted several times on social media uh, by Christians, but also those who are members of the denominations. Um, And perhaps you've even seen it, even if you aren't on social media. uh, It's probably been posted somewhere in some fashion. And the saying is this, in so many words, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum or a hotel for saints. Now, that sounds pretty good. And a lot of times it's posted, even from those who are professed followers of the Lord, but i think that it actually contradicts biblical principle it's usually quoted in a context with an explanation of how there are people who are struggling with sins maybe they're in an adulterous relationship maybe they got drunk on a saturday night maybe maybe they're hanging out with the wrong crowd they're addicted to drugs they're they're struggling with something they haven't broken free from it those people still need to go to church on sunday morning because The church is a hospital for sinners. But there's never the explanation that they need to break free from that sin, for it's even matter that they go to church. And certainly going to church, I don't want to take away the fact that even if a person is guilty of sin sitting in the pulpit or, or sitting in the pew, that they may be able to hear something they need to hear at church. So I'm not by any means suggesting that people should just stay home. You need to go to worship your God. But... It comes with this idea that there's something advantageous to come to church while holding on to some sins. And it's this idea that the church is a hospital for sinners. It's also quoted in a context, I think, of a Calvinistic slant where, you know, there's an inability, some think, that we can break free from sin. We can't break free from sin, that's why we come to church. But let me suggest to you that all of that is completely contradictory to what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says nothing about the church as being a hospital for sinners and nothing even remotely close to that. The Bible says that the church is the body of Christ, which operates under the direction of Christ's headship. It calls it a kingdom, which is subject to Christ as king and follows his law. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we read of the church as a spiritual house and a spiritual priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices in First Peter or Timothy rather, First Timothy chapter three, it speaks about the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. And the word church is translated from a Greek word ecclesia, which means called out. And what it has reference to chiefly is that the church is the called out of darkness or sin into light or righteousness in following God. And so, really, the church is not a hospital for sinners. The church is the product of those who have been saved from their sins and they are spiritually healthy and following the Lord and getting even better each and every day. In fact, this idea that the church is a hospital for sinners implies that the church is what takes care of sin. And that's a Catholic concept. When they speak of the church as the authority, the church as the aid, when really Christ is the aid. The church is the recipient of His aid. The church has no authority. The church has no position of power. Christ is the authority. Christ is the power. Christ is the grace. Christ is the forgiveness. And the church is the product of His gracious work. And we who are members of the church are those who are saved and therefore to be set apart from sin in working for the Lord That phrase has undertones of tolerance for sin and it it lacks a full separation from the body of sin as is the will of God. And we need to be careful about those kind of quotes that they sound good because a lot of times they come from sources of error. And while we may not catch it, that's how error is. It's subtle and it's dangerous. We need to be careful about that. What we need to understand is that spiritual life, it certainly comes from the forgiveness of God by virtue of Christ's, perfect sacrifice but I want to tell you that it's not merely a freedom from the consequences of sin where we're freed from death we don't have to die because of our sin and and it spiritual life is being freed from that death and we live kind of a quasi changed life where we're still holding on to some things but we're also going to church and we're also reading our bible and we're also praying that's not what spiritual life is about too many even in the Lord's church play church They're not members of the church who are active and learning and growing and following after the perfect example of Christ. They're just playing it. They just come because they've always come. It's it's an activity that they always do. That's not what spiritual life is about, and it does nothing good for us. Spiritual life is the state of one who has been separated from sin. It's the state of one who has not just been freed from the consequence of sin, which is death, but freed from sin itself itself, which requires the forgiveness by virtue of Christ's blood, but it also requires the resurrection power of the gospel to transform us where we're not sinning anymore and we're living like Christ. And so we're not just going through the motions and holding on to some things of our past existence as sinful man, but we are living like the Son of God. That's what spiritual life is all about. The Bible's very clear that even out of the group of the called out, those who comprise the body of Christ, not everyone will win the race. And it's not because God doesn't provide for everyone in His family what is needed, we'll talk about that this evening, to to be saved in the end, to stay saved, and to get to heaven. But it's because some give way to the devil's ploys and thinking there is security even while they are not striving to be like Christ and they're holding on to sins. And all they do is show up to church. And and it may be that they have changed to a degree where it's so much better than it was before, but it's still not what it's supposed to be. There's no security in that. And Revelation 3 and verse 1 One of the churches of Asia addressed in Sardis is told, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. He goes on in that same letter to talk about how although that church has a name, it's alive, but it's actually dead. There are some, not the whole church, but there are some in Sardis who haven't defiled their garments. And if they continue in purity, they'll be saved. The implication of that is that there are some who are members of the church in Sardis who weren't going to go to heaven unless they repented. Just because you come to this building, just because we participate together in worship doesn't mean each and every one of us as individuals is right with God. It should be that way. But we shouldn't let the devil offer false security in that regard. Spiritual life is all about being transformed into the image of Christ, truly breaking free from sin in holy, dedicated service to God. And we can't do that with one foot in the world and one foot out of the world. Jesus, many times in His ministry, stressed this point, that in order to live spiritually, we must first die. And there's too many who think they have spiritual life, but they haven't really died to sin. They're holding on to it. They're not being transformed. It's been so many years and they have made no progress whatsoever and they're still struggling with the same sins they've always struggled with. That's not spiritual life in Christ. And a person like that who never decides fully to dedicate themselves to the will of God and the power He's provided us to fully and finally break free from sin, they're not going to make it. And the Bible's very clear about that. We need to make sure that we understand that ourselves. Jesus in John 12, as we recently studied, answered when the Greeks wanted to see him, and Andrew and Philip told him this, he answered with this. He said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. He speaks in verse 23 and 24 of his death. He has to die so that he can produce much grain. That is, many souls will be saved from his death. If he doesn't die, not even these Jews and much less these Greeks who want to see him will be benefited in any way spiritually. He has to die first. But while it's not an exact parallel, he essentially says, you've got to die too. He said... If anyone loves his life, he'll lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, you'll keep it for eternal life. And that's when he applies us following in his footsteps of dying ultimately to live, or in his case, dying to be glorified. In verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. To serve Jesus is to follow Jesus even to the cross, which is why in other places he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus had to die so we could live, and He says, similarly, not the exact parallel, because Jesus didn't have to die to sin. He never sinned. He died for sin. But similarly, you have to die if you want to live. You've got to sacrifice your life. You've got to let go of this material world and the sin which it's all about, and you've got to follow Me. If you don't die to your sins, you will not live spiritually. And I think we can understand this very fundamental, biblical, yet potent uh, principle that we must die in order to live by understanding what spiritual life is about. We've stressed it to a certain degree already. But consider, he says, he who loves his life will lose it, but he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He speaks about two different lives. We spoke about this on Wednesday. There is the Suki, life in this world, which is physical. And the Zoe, eternal life, spiritual life. But notice that he talks about losing it versus keeping it. And the implication is that you possess it now and you'll lose it later. Or you possess it now and you will keep it later. Because one continues on, as present during this world, but continues on and is consummated in the other world. And one can only be in this world. And that's the life lived for the physical, the sinful life. In John chapter 6, you might remember Jesus said, this is the will of the Father in verse 39 who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of He who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up in the last day. He goes on in verse 47 to say, most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in me has everlasting life. He's saying if you follow my words, you have everlasting life now but where you have physical life now and you will lose that in the, in, the death, in, in the death of your body, you will not lose this spiritual life. I won't allow you to lose it. I'll raise you up. And so we possess eternal life right now in the Son, obviously to a certain measure, and we won't lose it if we continue to follow Jesus. So understand first that spiritual life that is offered is not just perspective. It is perspective in the sense that we're saved and we're not fully saved until we're in heaven. But it's offered now. And what spiritual life ultimately is is fellowship with God. In John 17 and verse 3, Jesus will say this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's not only saying that the way to spiritual life is knowing Him in Jesus. He's saying that while that may be in a sense the way as Jesus says in John 14.6 spiritual life is knowing God in Jesus. What spiritual life is all about and the reason why we can experience it now and it's consummated in the end is because we can be with Jesus now. We can be with God now through His Word, through fellowship. Fellowship speaks of participation. So what spiritual life is is that we are right with God and participating with Him in the things of God. You can't do that with sin. In First John 1 and verse 2, John writes about the life that was manifested and that we have seen. And he says, as an apostle, we bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying the spiritual life we speak to you about and we offer you through the gospel is fellowship with God. And in turn, you will then have fellowship with us who have fellowship with God. So spiritual life is participation in the things of God. It's it's participating and walking in the light and righteous ways according to God's will. And this is why sin has caused a great problem. Because God's holiness precludes us, or precludes Him rather, from having fellowship with us due to sin. So spiritual life is fellowship with God, but when we sin, God can't have fellowship with sin, so we don't have fellowship with God, we don't have spiritual life, and in essence we have spiritual death. In verse 5 of 1 John he says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Remember in James in verse 13 of chapter 1 he says that, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. In, in 1 Peter he calls the people to be like God, as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, Be holy for I am holy. In other words, you are Christians, but if you continue or want to continue to have fellowship with God, to keep spiritual life, you must be holy as God is holy. You cannot be involved in sin because spiritual life is fellowship with God, but God can't have fellowship with one who is in sin. And so we understand very Simply what sin is and what it led to and why. Sin leads to death. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. And I don't think we understand that death, the whole concept, is a separation. James explains in James 2.26, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Physical death is when the soul leaves the body. And faith that is dead is devoid of works, separate from works. And it's the same thing with spiritual death. It's it's the word thanatos in the Greek. And physically, as Vine says, it is the separation of the soul from the body. But spiritually, it is the separation of man from God. When we sin, we die spiritually because spiritual life is fellowship with God, but sin separates us from God. As Isaiah 59 and verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. That's why Jesus was sent. Jesus was not sent so that we don't have to die but we can still be in sin. Jesus wasn't sent to say although you're in sins and you can't help it and we don't expect you God doesn't expect you to fix that I'm going to die so that you don't have to even though you're going to hang on to some sins. You may get better, but you'll never fully break free from sins. And that's why I'm dying. That's not why Jesus died. Jesus came to deal with sin. Hebrews 9 and verse 28 says, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Jesus came because of sin. Matthew one twenty-one explains that Mary shall bring forth a son and call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from spiritual death. Well, yeah, in a way. But it says he will save his people from their sins. The sin is what causes spiritual death. In Romans 3, it speaks of his blood being the propitiation through faith that God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He passed over sins, but He deals with sins in Christ's death. And if you have faith in that, then your sins are taken away by virtue of His propitiatory blood. Or as He says more plainly in Matthew 26-28, when He institutes the Lord's Supper, He says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I didn't shed my blood so that you can be exempt from the consequences of sin that is death, but still be in sin, I came to take away your sins by my blood. And that's important. It may seem like a subtle difference, but it's important. And this is the implication. Certainly spiritual life is fellowship with God. But the reason why we did not have fellowship with God was because of our sin. And sin separates from God. And so while spiritual life positively is fellowship with God, spiritual life negatively, the other side of the coin, is separation from sin. We were brought into relationship with God because we were separated from our sins. That's why it's spoken of as reconciliation. Romans 5 and verse 10 says, When we were enemies, we were away from God, separated from Him, at enmity with Him. We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Because we were reconciled to God, it means we had our sins taken away and sent away. And so while spiritual life offered by God and what we possess is fellowship with God, it is equally true that spiritual life is separation from sin. Spiritual life is having a relationship with God. The only reason we have a relationship with God is because we were forgiven of our sins. In Romans 8 and verse 1, Paul explains, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ means no condemnation because to be in Christ is to be in a relationship with Christ who is God. But I want us to notice what he says. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You're in Christ in a relationship with Him because the gospel freed you from sin. Likewise, in Romans 6 and verse 22, and we'll look at Romans 6 at greater length in a minute. Now having been set free from sin, we became slaves of God. That's a good relationship, and we'll see that. We are in a relationship. God is our master. We are His bondservant because we were freed from sin. We are saved because we are separated from sin. In John 8 and verse 31, Jesus speaks about the relationship of discipleship with Jesus. If you abide in my words, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. explains later on, freedom from sin. We sustain a relationship with him as his disciples because we have followed the truth and been freed from sin. So let me suggest to you that we make a mistake if we only view spiritual life that God offers and that we've received as an escape from Death, an escape from the penalty to which sin leads. That's part of it, and we should rejoice in that. But we make a mistake if we think spiritual life is simply avoiding spiritual death, eternal death. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, as we know, Paul says the wages of sin is death. But I want us to understand the implications of that. The wages of sin is death. In other words, what you earn by sinning is death. And what that implies is that death is the result, the resulting problem, the consequence, but the cause, the root problem, what needs to be dealt with is sin. You cannot receive forgiveness or or rather escape death without dealing with the problem of sin. In chapter 5 of Romans and in verse 12, Sin is spoken of at length of course and emphasized as a great problem in the world when it says therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sin. He's obviously talking about spiritual death because every man incurs that spiritual death because they have sinned. But death spread to all men. But why? Because all sin. So death is by sin. You cannot get rid of death unless you get rid of sin. We need to understand that. That's a very fundamental but important point. Spiritual life is just not an escape from the consequence of death. Spiritual life is an escape from sin. He goes on to say that grace addresses the sin problem in chapter 5 of Romans in verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness, to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace abounds much more than sin Sin is dealt with. But this led the Romans to maybe think about something that Paul foresaw them thinking about. And he said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now think about the lack of logic in that suggestion. Death is a problem, but the cause of death is sin. And so God's grace overwhelmingly deals with the problem of sin so that we are no longer dead spiritually. But their thought is, can't we continue in sin that grace may abound? But sin is the cause of death. And so how can you be benefited by God's grace if you're continuing in sin? Because sin always brings about death. And that's why he says, how shall you who died to sin live any longer in it? Your salvation, by God's grace, according to the gospel, was your dying to sin. You died, and that's why you live. So why would you turn back to that which caused your death? It doesn't work that way. Not even God is powerful enough to contradict His own word and His own plan and His own nature. Grace does not abound as we continue in sin. Grace abounds where sin abounds, in the sense that it takes care of the sin problem so you don't walk in sin any longer eternal life spiritual life is the result of breaking free from sin it's not about life with sin devoid of consequence it's about life free from sin and therefore free from its consequence and the Bible is very clear about this consider Paul in Galatians 1 and verse 22 it says I was unknown by the face to the churches or by face to the churches of Judea who were in Christ but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted the church or he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy and they glorified God in me. Paul was in sin persecuting the church. How did he become saved? He broke free from sin. He was persecuting the church and now he is preaching about the faith he once tried to destroy. He says in chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. I died. We'll talk about that later. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live, I live in, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I died and now I live. I'm not living for myself anymore in sin, but I'm living for God. The Thessalonians are the same. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9, they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. They turned away from the sin of idolatry to God. They live spiritually because they turned from their sin. Also the Cretans, as Titus is instructed to teach them about sound doctrine in Titus 3, he says in verse 1, remind them to be, uh, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. And notice verse 3 of Titus 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating and hating one another. And then he talks about the grace of God, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, that having been justified, verse 7, by His grace we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And in verse 8 he encourages them to be careful to maintain good works. Why were they saved? What was their salvation? They were walking in sin. God forgave them of their sin and now they are not walking in sin. In fact, in the second chapter of Titus, in verse 11 and 12, it tells us the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. But I want to suggest to you that if eternal life is not life that still is in contact with sin but devoid of its consequence, but it's actually life that has broken free from sin's grip, then the opposite is true as well. The implication is that one may claim to have possession of spiritual life, but if they are holding on to sin, if they have not broken free from sin, even if they are fully convinced that they're saved and they're right with God and they have hope, they do not. We need to understand that potent truth. Salvation is freedom from sin And so if I am in sin, and I am continuing in sin, then I am not saved. It doesn't matter that I was baptized. We'll see in Romans 6 that truth. Consider the widows of 1 Timothy 5. He's speaking about uh, the church taking into their, their role of regularly supported in the church's benevolence widows. And he speaks about those who are really widows. There are qualifications they have to meet in order to be in that particular situation. And he explains in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 5, she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Verse 6 he says, she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. He's not saying it's wrong to have luxuries. He's contrasting that with what he said in verse 5. She's not spiritually minded. She's not dedicated and devoted to the work of the Lord. She's simply... Being lazy and living in pleasure and luxury. She's a busybody in other people's matters. All those kinds of things. She's dead while she lives. She thinks she's a faithful Christian. She's actually spiritually dead. Or the false teachers in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power. It appears that they're alive. And they may think they're alive, but they're actually dead. We reference Revelation three and verse one, the church in Sardis, who has a name that they are alive, but they are dead. In verse three it says, "Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know that your hour the, what hour I will come upon you. Repent implies sin. The reason they have a name that they're alive is because they're a Church of Christ. But the reason that they're really dead is because they have sin in their midst. But I want us to think about that as I mentioned before as verse 4 indicates that there are some among you who have not defiled their garments. That the church is the church but it's made up of individuals. God isn't going to save us by groups. He's not going to say I'm saving everybody at Elm Street. I'm saving everybody at this local congregation. We've got to be members of His church in order to be saved. But salvation is an individual thing. So think about that broken down to the individuals that comprise the church in Sardis. You have a name that you are alive, Jeremiah, but you are dead, Jeremiah. Why? Because there are sins you have not repented of. If one thinks he has spiritual life, but he is continuing in sin, not dedicated to righteousness and not actually following the Lord. It doesn't matter how many scriptures that person reads, how many prayers that person prays, how many services that person attends, and how convinced that person is that they are saved. They are not saved. Salvation is separation from sin. This is why Jesus said in John 12, 25, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Mark 8 in verse 35, Jesus said, Whoever loses his life for my sake, and the Gospels will save. And I know that we often stress the sacrificial nature there of actually being willing to lay down our physical lives, die for the cause of Christ. That's certainly true. Revelation 2 and verse 10 is speaking about that very thing. Be faithful to the point of death, until death, and I will give you the crown of righteousness. But what he's saying is that you've got to die to your man of sin. Die to this world. You're dead to this world. The world is dead to you if you want to live spiritually. You know, Paul said it in so many words in Galatians 6.14 when he said, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I mentioned Romans 6. This is what Romans 6 is about. Romans 6 is basically stressing the points we've made from the Scripture thus far this morning. Romans 6 isn't about baptism. We turn to Romans 6 to show that baptism is a burial. See, you're saved at the point of baptism. All this kind of stuff. That's a great place to go. But Paul isn't giving a dissertation on baptism of the the method and the mode and the, the efficacy of baptism. He's actually taking that for granted and pointing out something that the Romans evidently had missed. He is basically speaking of a penitent life. Life in Christ is about penitence. That is, I have repented, changed my mind completely, and my actions reflect it. I have left the life of sin to be devoted to the life of the Lord. And if I haven't fully left the life of sin, as we'll see in Romans 6, then I'm not truly devoted to the Lord. I'm actually separated from Him Dead spiritually, because I'm holding on to sin. And it didn't matter that he was baptized. You were forgiven of those sins, but you turned back. That's what he addresses. Baptism is vital and necessary, but if we don't understand the implications of our baptism, which is what Romans 6 is about, and the life that we're now supposed to live, then we won't make it to heaven. We've got to die in order to live. Notice in the first four verses, the beginning of their spiritual life as we know. They asked that question that we mentioned before. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, how shall you who died to sin live any longer in it? When did they die to sin? He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? How are we baptized into his death? He's saying you're baptized into the benefits of his death. He died to take away your sins. Your sins are taken away. Why? Because you're baptized into the benefits of his death. And I want us to notice what he says in verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And that's essentially what the rest of the chapter is about. Yes, you were baptized into his death. And as we'll see, not only were you baptized into the benefits of his death, but perhaps a play on words, you died yourself, not just him. You died too. But as he was raised, you were raised. And he's not talking about the bodily resurrection in the end. He's not talking about the last day of judgment where all will be raised. He's speaking about our spiritual resurrection to be a new creature in Christ. You died with Him, and as He said in verse 2, you died to sin. That's what you died there. And you raised, and you're to be living a new life right now. And He goes on to stress what that really means. He says in verse 5, if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, If we want to talk about that, we we are saved from our sins because of his death. That's a wonderful thing. We also need to understand that we were raised and we should be also in the likeness of his resurrection. What do you mean, Paul? Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. What's the old man? That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. What was the death? It was a spiritual death to the man of sin. What was the resurrection? It was a spiritual resurrection to a life separated from sin. I want us to notice there, he says, that the body of sin might be done away with. The ESV translates it, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The Greek word done away with that's translated into that is kadhargio, and Arton Gingrich gives this definition. To cause something to come to an end or to be no longer in existence. My center column reference says it means rendered inoperative. In other words, you're not sinning anymore. You don't sin. That's not what you live for. We're studying that in First John as Matt's leading it. We, we see that the one who is a child of God does not sin, and he cannot sin for his seed remains in him. You're baptized into his death, that means you died to sin, but just like he was raised, you need to be raised and live a life that is completely different. When a person dies, they're no longer living the life they lived before. We don't see them as they are anymore. They're different, they're someplace else, they're doing something else. That's what he's saying here. You were slaves of sin, but you died, so you're no longer living the same way, or so it should be. He says in verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with Him. How do you mean? Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. It's similar to John chapter 12 and the points Jesus making. They're not exact parallels. But what He's saying is that Jesus died for sin, but He only did it once. You died to sin, and you don't return to it. It was a one-time thing. You, You don't go back to that. He died to sin once for all. You died to sin once for all, which means you never turn back. And he applies it as such in verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that has a practical look to it. And that's what he goes on and says in verses 12 through 14. But I want us to notice he says reckon yourselves. They weren't reckoning themselves. It means to consider yourself or behave accordingly. Understand that you're to be living a completely different life, separated from sin, doing the Lord's will. You need to understand that's what happened to you in baptism, and you need to act like it. It's still a choice. You need to start making that choice. So he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. Someone will say, we don't have the choice. We can't break free from sin. We're inherently sinful. We're trapped always and always will be, and that's why Christ's death is so important. He's saying the exact opposite point. Christ's death is so important because it gives you the ability and the power to break free from sin. Because if you start sinning again, you will lose your salvation. Don't let it rain that you should obey it in its lust. How do you not let it rain? Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You make the choice. My members, as he says it, is my body. What am I using my body for? I am presenting my body in service to God, not to sin. Used to, I just did what I wanted to do with my body. I sinned. But you died to that past life. You made a a decision. You devoted yourself to God, or at least you should understand that, and if you don't, start understanding it so that you can devote your life to God. So now present yourself to God's service. He says, for sin shall not have dominion over you if you're not under law but under grace. But if you present your members, sin will have dominion over you. That's what he goes on to say. And so we need to understand the consequences of turning back to sin. We need to make sure the devil doesn't fool us into thinking that because we were baptized into the body of Christ, and we were washed in his blood, that we can turn back to sin, maybe not as much, but turn back to some sins, hold on to something, not ever increase and grow to maturity where we don't struggle with that anymore by the grace of God, but we can, we can hold on to this area and still be righteous and still be a child of God and still have hope of salvation. He says that's not how it works. He says, what then, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Another thing stemming from verse 14. What he's saying in verse 14 is you're not merely under law but especially under grace. If you are only under law, like the law of Moses, without the provision of grace in Christ's sacrifice, then you would never be freed from sin. But now, even though you're still under the law of Christ, you have a sacrifice to free you from sin. That's why grace abounds more. But what that doesn't mean is that you can just keep on sinning because the provision of grace is there. And this is why he says in verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? He mentions two things. One thing he says, whether of sin leading to death, if you present yourself slaves to obey sin, you will be that one slave. He says, God be thanked, verse 17, that though you were slaves of sin, you're not anymore is what he's saying. He's not thanking God that they are slaves of sin. He's saying, I'm thanking God because you're not anymore. But you were, verse 18. You were set free from sin. Verse 19, just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, that's what sin does. You present your members to sin, granted, remembering, he's speaking to Christians here. He's speaking to people like us. We've been baptized. We've been saved. We've been added to the body of Christ. If we turn back to sin, we once again become sin's slave. And not only that, it starts snowballing. Lawlessness, leads to more lawlessness. He says in verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. Someone who has been added to the church says, I am righteous because of Christ's death. But that's only true if you're not living in sin. He's saying you are free from righteousness. There's no way that you are righteous to any degree if you're holding on to your sin. You're lying to yourself. If you turn back to sin, you free yourself from righteousness. It doesn't matter. If you are baptized, that's what you do. You undo what was done before. He says, what fruit do you have then? And the things of which you are ashamed. For the end of death, the wages of sin is death. Verse 23. We need to realize that. Salvation is being separated from sin. And that's why we have the positive concept of salvation as having righteousness, as having the hope of life eternal in heaven as being with God in fellowship forever. So he says, on the contrary, in verse 16, or of obedience leading to righteousness. You've got to obey God to be righteous. You cannot be sinning if you want to be righteous. He explains, God bethink that though you are slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you are delivered, verse 17. He's speaking about their obedience of verses 1 through 4. You obeyed the gospel, which told you to be baptized. When you were baptized, you were no longer a slave of sin, but you were delivered to this form, or the Greek word means a mold. It molds you, a mold of doctrine. But notice the language. He says, to which you are delivered. He's speaking that we were delivered to the doctrine. The doctrine is our master now. We were slaves of sin, but when we died to sin, we were no longer sin's possession. Whose possession are we? The only alternative is God's. We were delivered to God as a slave or as his doctrine as a slave. Sin owns you. You are freed from sin and the gospel now owns you. But it only owns you if you're obeying the gospel, which is what he already said. And just like lawlessness leads to lower lawlessness, he says, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Holiness means set apart. You are far away from sin. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. That's the complete opposite of this idea that we can hold on to a few sins and avoid the consequences of death because of Christ's blood. Christ's blood is so that our sins are taken away and His resurrection power can lead us further and further away from sin. Salvation is complete separation from sin. He says in verse 21 Fruit then did you have in those things which are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end of everlasting life. How did you become slaves of God? How did you have your uh, fruit of holiness? And how will you have? Everlasting life, having been set free from sin. You see, salvation is separation from sin. And we need to understand that concept because if we think we're alive with Christ spiritually, ultimately because we were baptized into His death. His death was accessed by our faith in baptism and His blood washed our sins away. But we don't understand the implications of that, that we died to sin and we should be living for righteousness, so we're holding on to sin. Your baptism is ultimately rendered void by that. I'm not saying that you have to be baptized. Again, those who have been added to the family of God have the ability to pray to God for forgiveness, and He will forgive them. That's quite obviously true. 1 John 1 and 2 tells us that. What I am saying is that baptism is merely the start. And we cannot expect to be righteous. We cannot expect to be saved in the end. And we are not saved now just because we've been baptized. But only if we're breaking free from sin. Only if we're living righteous and we're dedicated to God. As Jesus said, we must die if we're going to live. And I'm afraid sometimes the devil has fooled too many into believing that they don't have to die completely to live. And they're dead while they live here this morning and have not obeyed the gospel, we want to offer you that invitation. That's the step. You can't die to sin without baptism. Baptism is the death, burial, and then resurrection to a new life by virtue of Christ's sacrifice. That's the first step. And then you've got to dedicate yourself to righteous living and grow in that increasingly to holiness day after day. If you have obeyed the gospel, but you've fallen short in some sense or fashion, you're, you haven't fully broken free from sin and you want to, to actually dedicate yourself to the Lord. Maybe it's of a private nature or public nature, but if we can help you, that's what we're here for this morning. The invitation is extended to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing.